Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. All right. If you need a Bible, please put a hand up. We've got some friendly people that are going to hand out Bibles right now. If you don't own a Bible, we would love if you would take that one home. That's our gift to you. And turn to page 883 when you get there. Everybody else, if you have a Bible and know your way around, turn to John chapter 3, if you would. John chapter 3. For you regulars, in case you were wondering, uh, the hardback black Bibles that we just bought a few weeks ago are New Living Translation. That is a super accessible uh, dynamic equivalent that's about a seventh grade reading level. And so the reason that we hand those out is that those of us who are here, it's our very first week, we might not have ever read the Bible before, right? So if we've never read the Bible before, we don't need uh, something that's clunkier and more accurate, like a word for word. I use the ESV study Bible personally, love it, but I grew up in church. Does that make sense? If you kind of know where the author's going already, if you already know this story, you can get uh, down into the weeds, diving deep. We're going to be preaching in John 4 briefly. You're going to see it actually next week. Uh, the start of the woman at the well, for example, uh, a dynamic equivalent is going to simply say at about noon, Jesus sat wearily beside the well and asked for water. A technically more accurate version like the ESV is going to say at the sixth hour. If you've never been to church, how do you know when the sixth hour is? Does that make sense? Okay, so just for you regulars, in case you're wondering why I chose that specific translation, that is why we're doing it. We're making it as easy to understand as possible. You have the rest of your life to study the deep things, amen? All right, my Bible is open to 1 Kings 8 for some reason. I have no idea, but that's not helpful. So, John 3. We are at week four now of a series called Saints and Sinners, where we are seeing in chapters three and four of the Gospel of John this juxtaposition where Nicodemus, who's a total insider and he knows lots of Bible verses, he is struggling over how to connect to God. And then we're going to see two people in a row starting next week, the woman at the well and then a uh, centurion, I believe, a Roman official, Two total outsiders who had never been to church. And they respond in faith rather quickly. Now to a devout Jew, you'd, all, you'd have to be offended seeing these stories back to back. The pastor cannot listen to God, but the prostitute can. That's what we're going to learn from these two chapters of the scripture. Because Jesus says elsewhere, I believe in John, but definitely in the synoptics, he says, listen, Healthy people don't think they need a doctor so they don't go to the doctor. It's the sick people who will come after me. And he, it was tongue-in-cheek. He wasn't saying that the Pharisees and the religious elite weren't sick. They just didn't know they were sick. And that's what this story is showing us. Nicodemus taught seminary classes, and he doesn't know how to connect with God. But the outsiders who've never been to church, they find a way. So, if you've read the, ahead, if you cheated and read the rest of chapter 3, you know exactly where we're going. Today's sermon is called She Ran Away with the Best Man. That'll make sense in a bit. Read with me, if you would, starting at verse 22. We're going to finish out the rest of the chapter. 
Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water there, and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. So he's writing 60, 70 years after the fact. People know that at some point, John the Baptist was arrested, beheaded. If we're new to the Bible, we don't know that yet, so this is a weird phrase. But his people already knew, the, sto- the readers knew the story of John the Baptist, that he was killed at some point for preaching the truth. And he was saying John was still alive. Okay, that's the parenthetical statement. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And then different commentators handle the rest of these verses a little different. These are almost undeniably some type of synopsis of what John has said so far. So I'm not going to teach in detail about the rest of these verses. They are a repeat of what John has already said. He's reinforcing his argument, but let's read it together. 31. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven is greater and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few people, how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. So now you can see why John the Baptist had a short ministry. He didn't sell a lot of books. He didn't make it onto Oprah. Right? Don't you just feel like passing the plate around? Wow. Who who does not believe remains under God's angry judgment. John the baptizer and John the evangelist who's writing this is trying to be as clear as they, they can possibly be. We love John 3.16. We don't like 36. They go together. They go together. If God is merciful and patient, what is he merciful with? And who is he patient toward? They go together. All right. Note takers, grab your pens everyone's following Jesus instead of you. Is this good or bad? Well, that depends. John's disciples didn't think it was good. Do you you hear the distress? Huh. Now, let's go back. Now, this is critical. (laughs) This story wouldn't even exist if John's disciples had listened to him the first time. 26. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah. Wait, 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 wait. That was way too wordy. What you meant to say was, the Messiah is baptizing people. Isn't this wonderful? 
Instead, the one you identified as the Messiah, oops, right? Okay, so you Bible scholars, there were seven devout Jewish men. They were called the seven sons of Sceba. We read about them in the book of Acts. And they hear that the name of Jesus is this powerful tool they can use to cast out demons. And so they speak to a demon saying, in the name of Jesus, Paul's God. Oops. They thought Jesus' name was this uh, incantation or this magical potion of, like, if we just say Jesus' name, the demon will obey. But you, you, you messed up there at the whole Paul's God. That's where you got it wrong. And then the demon not only does not obey them, but the man that he is possessed jumps them and beats up seven men, the scriptures say, bloody and naked. Right? Now, you can debate at the end of a round of boxing, like, oh, okay, he, I think he won, I think he got more jabs, but as uh, our pastor friend Matt Chandler said once, generally, if you came into the fight with pants and you leave the fight and you don't have pants, there's no debate as to, as to who won, right? Okay. So this spiritual space existing between John's disciples and the Messiah, no bueno. If you follow John, and John says, I am not the Messiah, and one day says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, are you really following John if you don't believe him when he says that? Right? So why are you here? Some of you have wondered why I've spent 14 months preaching as if there are people in the pews that are not a Christian. I've actually, I received feedback about a year ago, I think he's trying to get everybody saved. And, you see, for a 34-year-old, this isn't my first rodeo. I grew up in the church, and I watched people all around me with no fruit in their life whatsoever, still arrogantly asserting that they were Christians. I've been at a church where a man in his early 60s who's been a deacon for 30 years comes forward with tears in his eyes and gives his life to Christ. Did you catch the order of what I just said? Okay. So as long as those kinds of things happen, and so long as Jesus is saying some of us are going to go to hell, kind of surprised about it, like, wait, we did lots of cool stuff for you. What are you talking about? So long as Jesus keeps talking that way, I have to sound a lot like John the Baptist. You know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. And what did he say right before that? Do you hear? I mean, this is disjointed if you don't think about it enough. Verse 27. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. Huh? He is saying flat out to his disciples, God is going to have to give you. He is reiterating what Jesus just said to Nicodemus. Unless the Holy Spirit does this, you can't say, you don't know where it came from, where he's going, you can just see the evidence of it. Unless God opens your eyes, unless he gives you faith to trust him for who he is, I can't help you. Because I said it in plain, well, he didn't say it in plain English. In plain Aramaic, I told you, I am not the Messiah, he is the Messiah, and it wasn't enough, was it? You know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah, I am only here to prepare the way for him. He is pressing in real tough. 
He's not making friends here. He's pressing in on his disciples saying, where's your faith? I told you the truth. You have not believed it. And since you think he's the guy over there, the one that you said was Messiah, that guy, you're jealous that his ministry is growing because you don't believe he's God. If you believed he was God, you'd be thrilled. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride goober. That's Greg's standard, standard version. And the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. John the Baptist gets it. He believed the Holy Spirit when he said, that's him. So John the Baptist is thrilled. But let's ask a 2019 question. If everybody who you have leadership over starts showing more signs of following Jesus than signs of following you, are you okay with it? Or when that happens and you get upset, is that evidence that there's something going on in your heart, that you're building a kingdom unto yourself, not the kingdom, capital K? Here are a few, I don't know if I put them in the notes. No, I did not. Okay. I want to navigate at least four power dynamics steward, uh, that we have to be stewarded, okay? When we have influence over people and we see a transition where they are following Jesus and listening to his voice more than ours, are we okay with it? All right. First, teacher and learner. I want you to ask yourself this question. When people stop asking you questions because they learned to go to the Bible for answers, do you have an identity crisis? I'm only asking this because I've seen it a million times. How many of you know that it can feel like crack to have tons of people around asking you Bible knowledge questions? Ooh, that feeds the ego. Ooh, ask so-and-so, they know. Hey, I was, I was reading this in the Bible and I don't know, could you help me out? You don't think all of the Pharisees just came from nowhere, did you? That club grew because it felt good. It feels good. You feel holy. You feel holier than thou when people come and ask you Bible questions and ask you how to connect with God. And your wicked heart takes a beautiful priestly ministry of what you should be doing, connecting people to God, and you pervert it and you make a throne for yourself. Are we overjoyed when the people that we teach who say that they love Jesus and they're trying to follow Jesus... If we have faithfully told them to open the book that does not make mistakes instead of following the person who does make mistakes, when we teach them over and over to open the book for themselves and they finally start doing it, do we rejoice or do we have an identity crisis? It's our, it's our, it's our choice. Have we been building for his kingdom or our own? It's going to be revealed in that moment. Or what about a leader and a follower? When someone joins someone else's disciple group, are you offended? I invited them into this little group. I brought them into my home. We're hanging out. And, and, uh, or they joined my ministry and they were serving in my ministry. And they made a lateral move over to some other ministry. Now, for sure, people can leave a group or leave a ministry for bad reasons. But sometimes they're doing it for great reason. If you are a greeter... And you suddenly wake up and find out, I hate people. Hmm. 
we need to find a lateral move. Let's hand you a vacuum cleaner and you come in and help out Rocky, you know, at some time where there are no people around, you know? Like, let's find something that fits your gifting. Not all moves are necessarily bad. But if you're the team leader and someone leaves your team, do you take it personal? Do you? Do I? What if somebody, uh-oh, what if somebody left ARCF for another church and it wasn't because of conflict and some evil, you know, it wasn't that. What if it was some genuine reason? Are we going to get all hurt over it if it was actually a, a good and decent and, a, and appropriate decision? See, I think that church growth done wrong is the ultimate idolatry. If we're not careful, and for sure, I want this body to grow, to be sure. And I love those of you that I've met just in the last few months that for whatever reason you came from another church, I love you, I'm glad you're here, and I'm not second-guessing your motives. I'm here that we grow because Citrus Heights, who doesn't know her Savior, meets her Savior. One soul at a time. So, where are we at in the building of our own kingdoms? Where are we at when somebody leaves our group, joins our group? Does that feed the ego? Are we okay with that? When someone leaves. What about, now we're going to, ooh, this will be my last Sunday. You guys are going to kill me and hide my body out in the back 40. Parent-child relationship. Yeah, everybody just take a deep breath. When your adult child tells you they're picking up and moving to a dangerous part of the world to share the gospel, and you've made clear your disapproval, and they do it anyway, are you mad at them? Again, I'm bringing this up because I've heard the story countless times. And I'm going to have to deal with it myself probably, almost certainly within the decade, having a 10-year-old. It is one thing to call myself a Christian parent. And I define in my own head what that means. I bring you to church, we teach you Bible verses, I try to repent deeply when I screw up. Like, whatever that means. But then one day when my daughter's graduating college and wants to go work for IJM in Kashmir province of India or Pakistan, depending on whose side you're on. Is she my daughter first or she is? I am not telling you that if that happens that my soul will not be wrenched in fear. I don't know. I haven't been there. What I do know is that Cabrina is his, first and foremost. And there will be different points along the way. I think there have already been some small ones. Where I see my child doing something because she genuinely believes it, what, it's what God wants from her, and I can't biblically disagree with it. Not everything's in the Bible, you know that, right? Some things are on the wisdom and folly continuum, some things are on the faith continuum, we just have to trust that God is in this. In the parent-child relationship, am I raising her up to just be safe or am I raising her up to be a Christ follower? Those are not the same. The husband-wife relationship, and I'm really going to get in trouble on this one, but I thought about it, I prayed about it, oh well, here we go. 
When your wife buys groceries to give to the food closet, when you specifically said you wanted to save that money for your new boat, what do you do? Every Christian church and every Christian couple has got to figure out, like, what do we expect of godly men? What do we expect of godly women? But as far as I can tell in Scripture, a Christian woman is never, ever asked to submit to godless pagan leadership. See, I told you it was my last week. You guys are going to take me out bat. No, there he is. He's gone. Brothers, if you are not acting like a spirit-filled Christian and you are pursuing something of the world with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, don't expect this pulpit to stand behind you. I'm not going to tell your wife to follow you when your endeavors are blatantly selfish. I'm going to tell the brothers, lead in such a way that a Christian wife, it is her joy to follow you. Willingly. It is her joy to follow you. And the pursuing the shiny toys of this world is probably not something that's going to make a Christian's woman, her, her heart come alive. It's probably not that. Everyone is following Jesus instead of you. Are you okay with that? When the learner doesn't seem to be following the teacher, but following the ultimate teacher, are we okay with that? When the leader and the follower get out of sorts because someone's following Jesus more than following me, are we okay with that? The parent and the child, when the child proves to be more a son of the Most High than my son, am I okay with that? And when the husband and wife, if my wife has greater loyalty to the ultimate husband, the bridegroom, am I okay with that? Because if I am not, I am an idolater. And I've put myself on Christ's throne and I've put myself in his place and asked others to follow me in my own wicked endeavors. John has an opportunity right now in this text. You know what? You're right. Shame on him. He shouldn't be baptizing people. We got here first. It's like two churches in the same town, like, well, we're the first Baptist church. That's literally what first Baptist means. If you ever wonder, it just means they got here first. And then there's the second Baptist church, and, and it, everyone's going to that church now because they like the music better. <laughs> what would happen if there were, in a small town, there were only two Christian churches, and you're the pastor of the first one, and you heard that Jesus Christ showed up and started pastoring the second church? Everyone's going over there. What's the appropriate response when you find out Jesus is the pastor at the church down the street? Oh. Folks, we're wrapping things up. Come on, follow me. We're headed down the street, right? One kingdom. One king. If you find out Jesus is preaching, listen, but we had tickets to the Billy Graham crusade. Billy won't be there. He wants to be where Jesus is. Everyone's following Jesus instead of you. Is this good or is this bad? John the baptizer understands what Nicodemus does not. And I'm putting this in here because we do, um, 
We do ourselves and others a disservice when we rip stories out of their context. We don't read what's before or what's after. Amen? Especially what's for, before, because, you know, the story operates in a linear fashion. It's moving from the front to the middle, then to the beginning. So John was not, it was not coincidental that John the Baptist, this piece of the story, gets inserted here. Those of you who have been with us since January, you might even wonder, you maybe have wondered before, excuse me, as you've read this gospel, he already talked about John the Baptist a whole bunch. And then we moved on, wedding at Cana, and then we moved on, Nicodemus. Huh? Why are we talking about John the Baptist again? One answer, if you don't already know, John the evangelist could not care less about chronology. A lot of uh, scholars actually believe this event happened earlier. John's not trying to say that everything happened in a specific order necessarily. John's order is entirely theological. He's trying to make a certain point that the receiver, the reader, would believe. Okay? So John is putting this here to show the difference between Nicodemus' disbelief and John the Baptist perfectly understanding his role. John the Baptist is the best possible pastor because he will teach you how to connect with God and he's not going to build a throne for himself. Amen? Nicodemus is a terrible pastor so far. He is one of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 uh, religious leaders of Israel, and he just can't wrap his mind around what is it to connect with, what is this new birth, how does this happen, I don't get it, I'm confused. This is basically bad pastor, good pastor, put right next to each other. And then the good pastor uses an illustration that makes tons of sense to Jewish thought. Go with me again to verse 29. John the baptizer speaking. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. Like this is a rebuke. The best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear the vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. You guys are getting it backwards. If we call Israel after ourselves when we are only the best man, we're trying to steal the girl and run. That's the horrifying stuff that, that makes for like a, a, a TNT drama, right? You don't do that. If the bride leaves the groom at the altar, that is traumatic enough. But if she runs away with the best man, we don't have words for how horrifying that is. And John is saying, when pastors, elders, ministry leaders, Christians in general, when we try to call people toward the gospel, or seemingly, but we're only okay with them following us, we are stealing the bride. We are stealing the people for whom Christ bled, suffered, and died. I want you all to listen to me. I want you to all buy my book. I want you to all talk about how great I am. My kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom. We can do it in parenting. We can do it in our disciple groups. We can do it as a church. And John the baptizer is trying to communicate to us how unbelievably treasonous that is. 
to pull the church, the redeemed, toward ourselves only. Where Paul, early church father, is going to say it this way, follow me, what? Some of you know it. As I follow Christ. It means in, in the same way. To the degree you see my intensity following Jesus, follow me only in as much and not an inch farther. You only follow me to the degree that I'm following Jesus. You never, ever follow me if I'm sinning, when I am sinning. You never, ever follow me. That means that our pastors and elders, when we sin, you do not follow us into that sin. You know that, right? We did not write this book. We did not die on a cross for you. And we're going to do everything we possibly can to, read you, to lead you into holiness and a genuine faith lived out in love toward God, toward each other, and toward the world. But we are human beings and we're going to screw up. Oh, man, I'm so glad we didn't get any loud amens on that one. That was cool. That was cool. We are going to screw up. The elders will sin. The Bible will not. This will never sin. It will never lead you astray. John chapter 1 said the logos. I mean, this is, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? I just want to be clear who we're following. If you guys think I keep beating on this drum, watch the evening news for which church just recently became a cult. If you guys think I'm barking up this tree for no reason. Cults of personality are normative in American culture. That's why I keep saying mean things, so you'll be offended enough that you won't follow me all the time. <laughs> a Christian's joy, if we listen carefully, is not complete until people are following Jesus. Did you know that? If you love Jesus today, your joy, the fullness of enjoying God and his light pushing back darkness in the world, your joy cannot be complete until the darkness in individual hearts is flooded with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not possible. Now, I didn't get any reaction from the room on that one, either because you guys are really thinking, or because you disagree, or perhaps you think, oh, that's kind of blah, that's kind of duh. No, 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 this is, this is, a, this is a bigger animal than you might think. Because every form of advertisement on planet Earth, is trying to sell us joy. It tells us we can find joy, even uses that word, especially around Christmas time, when in fact all they have is a cheap knockoff called happiness. How many of you guys know that you could spend $50,000 on the most beautiful, amazing truck in the whole world that's the exact truck you've always wanted, and now you feel like a success because you worked hard, and now your dad's going to be proud of you, and blah, 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 blah. And your phone could ring, and you answer that phone call, and in four seconds, all of your happiness disappears. What was that $50,000 worth? It cannot overpower that phone call. When we conflate joy with happiness, we're screwing up everything. Let's be clear. Happiness can be purchased. It's just fleeting. It only lasts so long. Man, that sounds a lot like an illicit drug. 
And what do we do? We keep marketing it to you. Keep buying, please. Keep buying, please. Keep buying, please. And the fact that there are still ads on the TV or on your YouTube feed telling you, here's how to be happy, here's how to find joy, isn't that a testimony against itself? We should all just stop and go, wait a minute, you sold me a bunch of stuff last year and I didn't have lasting happiness, so why should I believe you this time? When are we going to call baloney on this? You sold me stuff, and I bought, and the happiness did not last. It was a cheap counterfeit, and I keep coming back to you for it. Inside the church, if we're honest, we know the answer. There is no higher joy than watching our Savior's kingdom advance one heart at a time. There's just nothing like it. That's why we're here. If you're a guest, we want you to know who Jesus is. Hope that's clear by now. Cards on the table. Because we believe that is the best possible life a human being can live. Fully reconciled to their creator by the blood of Jesus. That's what we believe. We could be wrong. And if we're wrong, we will die, then we won't exist, and we will have lived a happier life than you. That's Pascal. You study any 19th century philosophy. Like, the Christian life is actually happiest even if we're wrong. To feel loved by an omniscient God. Uh, it's a good life. It's a real good life. And then, back to being tough. You left being tough? Okay, maybe I never left. All right. Believing Jesus and obeying Jesus are the same thing. Believing Jesus and obeying Jesus are the same thing. Interesting. Where'd you get that, Greg? I'm glad you asked. Everybody look with me at verse 36. And anyone who believes, there's the verb, believes in God's Son has eternal life. Now the negative. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life. John uses belief and obedience interchangeably. And this is not the only place in Scripture where that happens. Because, and again, I know I keep railing on this over and over again. We are children, as part of the Western world, we are children of the Enlightenment that taught us everything can be verified under a microscope or in front of a telescope, and that's simply not true. If I believe that this chair will hold my weight, I will manifest that belief by sitting in it without reservation. That's where my faith is lived out. Those of us who are Christians, we got to keep going back to the book of James. You say you believe in God. Good for you. So does Satan. That's not helping him. We think that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a theological checklist. It's mental assent. Yeah, I believe in God. Check. I should get brownie points for that. Uh, yeah, sure, the Bible's true or mostly true as long as it doesn't bother me too much on the ways I choose to live my life. Check. Uh, I'll go to church a few times a year. Uh, check. Uh, I'll read the Bible, maybe. Check. You know, and, we, and we give ourselves lots of brownie points in this imaginary theological system that America believes. But if I'm giving myself the brownie points, I'm the judge. Who gives out the points? problem much? God has said, 
if you believe that my son's horrifying sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to wash away your sins, then you will rest in that the way that someone puts their full weight into a chair. Do you know what a person behaves like when they are no longer depending on their own behavior to justify themselves? They're free. Nothing owns them. If you, the Christian next to you is just, they're nuts, they're out of their mind, free. There's this joy that can't be contained. They don't have to earn God's approval anymore. That's because they have rested their full weight into the mercy of God. Not kind of, sort of, thought about maybe a little bit. Uh, uh, well, four out of six is good, right? I've, the checklist, is, I mean, I, I do some good stuff. I gave my money to a missionary once. Good for you. I think Satan gives money to missionaries. He just wants them out of town. Please, just leave. Get out of here. So, so what? Good for you. Good for me. We believe something. Believing in something is very different than submitting to it. I love my dad. I just never go to visit him. I love my dad. I just never call. That's all. I love my wife. I just never talk to her. Huh? In any other area of life, we can see how silly this is. You say you love your wife, but you also say you don't live in the same house as her and you never ever talk with her. The rest of us think that's weird. Believing Jesus and obeying Jesus are the same thing. So those of you who are regulars, you know I like to have our, uh, a couple of questions to ponder during our prayer time that we're about to go into. And, I, and I, we did a rope-a-dope this week. Those last two points are the questions. So let me go back one. If you already love Jesus, here's what I want you to ponder. Am I trying to find joy in things other than God having his way with our world? Am I settling for second best? Am I trying to find my joy in anything else? Because I've given up hope, I've been distracted by shiny objects, I've been lied to, I've been deceived. Am I trying to find the fullness of joy in anything less than what John says to find it? My joy is complete because people are following Jesus. That's what John says. And if you're a guest who's not sure yet what you think of Jesus, I want you to ponder this one. Believing Jesus and obeying Jesus are the same thing. And I want you to know that before you get yourself into a mess. And here's what I mean. Sometimes we'll pray with somebody and hand them a Bible and baptize them without telling them all of what it will cost you to follow Jesus. And I'm not afraid because I believe in a sovereign Holy Spirit. If he's after you, he's after you. In telling you, Jesus said about that conversion experience, he said, unless you will choose me over mother or brother or son or father, you can have no part of me. What? I'll just give you the tough part. You can go read the nicer verses yourself in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Lots of words of Jesus in there. Go for it. Do not think that Christian. I cannot come to you... Uh, 
with a standard American sales pitch. It's easy. It's cheap. comes in four easy payments of $29.95. It'll solve your life. It'll make everything better. That, that's not true of anything in following Jesus. Following Jesus could make your life worse in the short term. It could make things harder because now you are swimming countercultural to the way our world is going. Well, Greg, why would you preach a message that makes things harder? One, it's true. And two, the pain won't last forever. The struggle will not last forever. Because there will be a day, the prophets tell us, where you will not have to say to one another, you should know the Lord. That the knowledge of God will fill the earth as what? As the seas are filled with water. You ever been out in the sea? Is there water there? That is what it will be like. He's saying, the prophet is saying, there will be a day when everyone on earth knows the Lord. And that sounds happy, but it actually comes through a horrifying judgment. There will be a day when you fully leaning the weight of your connection to God into the cross of Christ, me leaning in and saying, Christ is enough for me. There will be a day where there's a huge payoff. And I don't want to paint it too bleak. I have unbelievable joy right now. Those of you who are in the room who love Jesus, you have unbelievable joy right now. But I just don't want anybody who is considering the Christian faith to be deceived by the baloney that's on television, by the baloney that you can find in a supposedly Christian book in the airport that tells you this is going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Fighting the darkness is not easy, but you know what? It'll wake you up in the morning. Anybody ever had a job that was really hard and it was your favorite job ever? If it speaks to your soul, it gets you out of bed. The kingdom of God gets me out of bed every morning, and it's hard. All right. If you are an elder or an elder's wife and you're comfortable so doing, would you guys please serve as prayer counselors right now um, here on the sides or the front of the room? We're going to pray, and we're going to respond to the word of God. I'm going to encourage you. Oh, I didn't hit the next slide. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to encourage you to write down your takeaway. Maybe go pray with somebody. If we do not respond to the word, we are hearers only, like Nicodemus, right? So we're going to take a moment. If you do not feel like you've heard from God, now is a great time to stop and say, God, I don't feel like I heard from you. What's going on? Reach out to him and just wait and see how he reaches back. We're going to pray and then I'll dismiss us in a bit. One last thing before you go. If you are new or relatively new, as you define it, and you decided, wow, this is definitely a place I want to be my church home, we would love to connect with you. Uh, we have a table here at the back called our VIP table. And that's a, just a good place where we can exchange digits. And I know how it is. That on a first date, you might not want to do that. But if you've been around and you go, wow, this is a good family, um, then we would love to connect with you, exchange uh, cell number, email, and get you connected into a, a good Bible study, connected into a ministry. 
Um, so that's what that table is for, and we have a gift for you when you go. All right, everybody else, you've got six and a half days to throw salt in every direction and shine light in every direction. Ready? Break.